you would remain standing and open your Bibles to Daniel, the first chapter. If we didn't have enough of exilic books with Esther, we're going to just go right into Daniel. Daniel chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, we'll read down through verse 7. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them the names Daniel, he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah, he called Shadrach, Mishael, he called Meshach, and Azariah, he called Abadnego. The word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask for help. Father, thank you for this, your word. Lord, I pray for today, but our entire study of Daniel, would you shape us, teaching us what it is like to live in exile, lessons that we need and give us hope. Lord, today as we consider these realities for these uh, young men taken into custody and taken away from their home, would you give us perspective on living life in our world? Would you show us Christ? We pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated. So again, if you didn't have enough already with the people of God being in exile, well, you're just going to have to give it a few more months. I think we have so many lessons to learn from the people of God in exile. Have you ever heard this phrase? I called it. I call this. I call shotgun. You've heard that phrase, right? When I was younger, my sister, we would be coming home from somewhere, and I didn't even have people to call, but she would be like, I call the phone. This is before everyone had a cell phone. Like, we had one phone hanging on the wall, and she would call it as we're in the car on the way home from somewhere, and I'm just like, what in the world? I'm not even thinking about the phone. Of course, you You're going to be on the phone. I I call it. I call it was this huge deal and probably still is. I think my boys still have fights about calling something. In some senses, 
That's exactly what's going on in the entire book of Daniel, is this is the divine voice saying, I call it. I call it. In some senses, this is a terrible time, yet before these events even unfold, and after these events, we hear God saying again and again and again, I call it. He is, God is showing himself sovereign in all of human history. And as we look back and think through the redemptive history of the people of God, it's this long sense of God saying, mine, I call it. Long before these events, we read in Isaiah 46, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, says the Lord, I will bring it to pass. I have purposed it and I will do it. God is saying, I call it. When he sends his people into exile, it's not an oops. God is not clutching his pearls, wondering what to do next. The book of Daniel is is all about God having ordained all of these events beforehand. We have this God who has called it again and again and again. History, this is the drumbeat of all of history. God is sovereign over it. In the Bible, Daniel fits interestingly in the wisdom literature. It doesn't fit with the prophets, although it contains a lot, a lot of prophecy. As we'll see, prophecy given to pagan kings, very interesting, having to do with the people of God. But it fits in wisdom literature, and wisdom literature broadly does this. It says, okay, we have the law, now how are we to live in light of it? Well, Daniel specifically tells us, how are we to live in light of it? In Babylon. How are we to live in light of God's word in a foreign land? Those are the lessons that we will have before us in the book of Daniel. Our question with both both Esther and Daniel is this, how should we think about life in exile? Daniel is a picture of God leading his people into a foreign land. And what will you do now? Remember the, the most immediate consequence of sin in the Garden of Eden? God's people were expelled from their home. They had this nice protected space, this incredible garden walled in with jewels everywhere. It was perfect, produced exactly what they needed. And and sin comes in and they get kicked out of their land. In some senses, we can see Daniel, the same thing has happened. The people of God have rebelled, yet another bad king, and here they're being expelled from their home. You might have had the conscious thought to yourself, maybe sometime in Esther, if not, maybe you're going to have it in Daniel. I'm not in exile. 
Shreveport is my home and it's always been my home. We're going to be talking about being in exile for months and months. However, you need to remember exactly who you are and what Jesus said. Remember John 17. Jesus is praying here. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may be sanctified in truth. Yes, you are not of this world, but you have been sent into it. You, if you are a child of God, are living life in exile. This is not your home. You are a pilgrim. You are out of place here. John 21, Jesus again said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Where is he sending us? Shreveport's always been my home. It's fine. It's not exile. You are in exile. You have been sent by Christ unless his prayer has failed. What kind of a world are you being sent into? Daniel was brought into a world that is utterly hostile to his belief in God. And I think largely we too are living in a world increasingly hostile, not just to Christians, but to faith in general. A Pew Research study done in 2021 reports about 3 in 10 U.S. adults, and this could be more, are now religiously unaffiliated. They're called the nuns. N-O-N-E-S, nuns, religiously unaffiliated. Not just not Christianity, not anything. I could give you a ton of stats, but that's not the point. This is the world that you and I are being called to go into, to live our lives in, to go to work in. Historically, the church has had various answers to this question of how we are to navigate ourselves in the world as the people of God. One response has been isolation. Christians, as Christians, we must fully remove ourselves from being involved in the world. On this side, we see various groups like the Amish and others who totally pull away from anything resembling this modern world. They argue removal from the world is a must. As we'll see in Daniel, there are times to remove yourself from various things going on in the world, but can you do it totally? So another answer has been not just the the opposite of isolation, but domination. As the world grows increasingly unchristian, we are to be about the culture war. We're to engage in the world and maybe even in politics in order to win the day. We find some of this going on in Daniel. Far from retreating from responsibility, we find Daniel and his friends engaging at a a fairly high level. But is that the full answer? Not fully isolation, not fully domination. There's another approach has been considered being assimilated into the world. And this view utterly diminishes the devastating realities of the fall itself and the world around us. 
if this is your stance, it's, it's not going to hold up. We'll see Daniel and his friends constantly fight this, this fight of full assimilation into what it meant to be a citizen of Babylon. The answer in Daniel is neither side is fully orbed enough. The book of Daniel offers counsel and encouragement on remaining unstained from the world as we stand against its forces, but also it teaches us how to engage the world in the, in the power of the Word of God. In this book, we see believers standing up for truth, speaking truth brilliantly and um, with insight to power. Daniel will remind us that our citizenship is not in this world, but in heaven, Philippians 3. Yet also, I think it's going to teach us another lesson. That we're not just longing for what's next. It's not just this big, long waiting time. Daniel teaches us to engage in the world that God has led us to. Engage. One more issue before we dive into today's text, and that's this. The, the, the primary takeaway from Daniel is not you go dare to be a Daniel. There will be lessons that we can learn from his life and his friends, but that's not the primary point. The primary point is Daniel is designed to, to, to point us way ahead to another exile. Daniel is designed to point us to Christ. Exiled from glory in the bosom of the Father to, co to come to earth. To, to dominate the powers of this world. That's what he did while he was in exile. Yes, there will be plenty of applications, but the first application is not run out and be a Daniel. The first application of any book is fly to Christ. Fly to Him. Today we'll look at the opening text in two ways. God's purposes in verses 1 and 2 and Babylon's program in 3 through 7. First, God's purposes. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Pay close attention to this. So that's the historical fact. Then, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand and some of the vessels of the house of God. Notice the two distinct characterizations were given. First, that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, is sieging Jerusalem. Then, in the second verse, we read that the Lord is giving Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, along with the temple vessels reserved for the worship of God, he's giving them to Nebuchadnezzar. Which is it? Is it Nebuchadnezzar doing the, the deal, or is it God doing the deal? Historically, we're, we're told what happens in the third year of Jehoiakim's reign. Let's go further back. King David was a great king in Israel, but the height of his kingdom has, has come in Solomon, his son and heir with Bathsheba. The kingdom was never bigger than it was, never richer than it was, never more prosperous than it was, but then we saw cracks. 
in the reign of Solomon. We saw cracks in his moral life. And right after his reign, the kingdom split in two. It fractured in the north remained Israel with Israel's king. And two tribes remained in the south, Judah with its kings. Verse 1 tells us about these events that are going on. This is Judah in the south. We should remember that Israel in the north in 733 were exiled under the Assyrian Empire and would never reemerge as the power that they were before and never fully be Israel as Israel again. That was going to be it. Judah lasted another hundred years, and here we find Nebuchadnezzar coming on the scene in Babylon. He, he is powerful. Okay, he, He's a powerful king. He's an empire builder. He, he's... Nebuchadnezzar is a mover and shaker. He's a dominant war horse. All of this takes place from 605 BC. The, the first deportations begin. And about 18 years later, they're going to wrap up in 586 BC with a third deportation and the utter, the utter destruction of Judah. Jerusalem's walls are going to fall. Solomon's temple is going to be dismantled brick by brick. It's a terrible time for God's people. We aren't just given this history, we're also given the theology. In verse 2, the Lord gives Jehoiakim into the hand of his enemy. God does it. Why in the world would God give his king over? We're essentially being told that God is the one who leads these people into exile. It's not because Nebuchadnezzar is so smart or such a good military tactician. It's not because he laid such a good siege. It's because God wants them to go into exile. Did God fall asleep at the wheel of history? Did God forget his covenant that he made with his people? No, the answer to all of that is absolutely not. He doesn't fall asleep at the wheel of history. And he doesn't abandon his people. We, we, we read in the prophecy of Isaiah, Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which is your father's that you have stored up to this day will be carried to Babylon. This is years before. All of your stuff is going to go to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, and some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Hezekiah was king then. He, he had been acting foolish, and, and he, he had actually taken the Chaldeans on a little tour of the temple. Look at all these riches, guys. Look at, look at how prosperous we are. And God is saying, you fool. You're inviting them to come and take everything. And in your sin and your rebellion, that's exactly what I'm going to let them do. God is at work. The cause is not primarily a material cause on the part of the Babylonian king. It's God's hand at work. As the people of God facing persecution and hardship, we are quick to decry how bad the world is becoming. It's evil out there. It's bad out there. 
How antithetical to God, however, do we also see the divine hand at work? Is God moving in all of this? Do we hear in the culture a call to repent? Do we see calls for lament, not only for the world, but even for the supposed Christians who celebrate what God calls evil? Prophecy in Scripture is more than just an accounting of what's going to happen. That's the exciting part. We all love that. Look, God is telling us what's going to happen. Future prophecy is viewing history through the lens of God's covenant. Often prophets say, here's the way you are right now today. We're told that these things take place in the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim. Who was he? Well, he's a descendant of David, of course. He's a Davidic king in Judah. In 2 Chronicles 36, we read, He did evil in the sight of the Lord his God. And Second Kings were given more information. Surely this came upon Judah at the command of the Lord to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh according to all that he had done and also for the innocent blood that he had shed. For he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood and the Lord would not pardon They had wicked kings, and God was done with their kings and their kingdom. He takes them out. I think there are two applications as we consider these realities. First, God keeps his word. If he says he's going to do something, he keeps his word. No matter what the consequences for himself or for his people, God is faithful to his word. We need to know that Whether we're prospering or we're suffering, God's word has not failed. Listen, that is a temptation we face time and time and time again in our lives. I I know I do. It seems like God's word has failed. God's word never fails. It might be slow. It might take time. God's word never fails. Second application is this. We look at the extent to which God will go ultimately to save his people. Consider what God has done here. Utter humiliation for his people. Vessels from the house of God. And this term is used for temple furniture. The furniture, the the is in the house of God, used for the worship of God, is carried off by Babylon and taken to their houses of worship. And it says the Lord is in control of all of it. How far is he willing to go to to rescue, to ultimately save his people? Ralph Davis says, Pagans would sing, praise Marduk, from whom all blessings flow as these vessels come out of the temple and into their temple. How far is God willing to go to to save his own? He calls what happens here, I love this, a humble sovereignty. A humble sovereignty. God is willing to suffer shame and Disgrace to awaken his people, to shake them, to cause them to repent, to show them his goodness. How does this not point us to Christ? 
Jesus did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped or literally clung to, but he, he humbled himself by taking the form of a servant. And in the form of a servant, he died, the, he died for sinners, but not just any death. He died a shameful death on the cross. How far is God willing to go to, to save a rebellious sinner like you and me? He's willing to shame himself in front of the false gods of Babylon. He's willing to be held up on a cross, a public spectacle, naked, with a crown of thorns mocking him, to save a sinful people like you and me. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that he should give his only Son to make a wretch his, his treasure. That's what we see going on in the opening verses of Daniel. God's people carried off, his stuff carried off to save his people, to cause them to repent. From God's purposes in history, we move to Babylon's program. We find that in verses three through seven. This, is a program not only designed to humiliate the Jews, but more importantly, we, we find this well-formed plan to, to bring the outstanding youth of Jerusalem to, to Babylon directly. Notice 3 and 4, bring some of the people of Israel, both the royal family and nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge and understanding and learning and competent to stand in the king's palace, bring us the sons of Israel. Bring us their best and brightest, the, the politically elite, the physically impressive, the intellectually bright and poised, exactly poised for a, a bright social life. Bring us those kids. Status, looks, brains, and presence. Why is Nebuchadnezzar doing this? He, he's taking this long-term approach with Israel. Israel's difficult. Judah is hard to conquer. He's got to go three times over a span of 18 years. So he's taking this long view. If we get their youth, likely around 15 years old, if we get them and, and shape them, then we'll have them. Nebuchadnezzar is taking a long view. The best way to win is to, to bring society over to his program, to a Babylonian empire style of, of mindset. The plan is to get the best and brightest sons and indoctrinate them in this program of Babylon and so have dominion over the people of God. Give us their bright lights. talked about this reality before in Esther and we looked at this reality in Ephesians chapter 6. This is the reality of spiritual warfare. It's very subtle. It's not on the surface. He doesn't say go get Daniel and all his friends and then cut their heads off. He doesn't say that. This is an assault from the side. This is a flank attack. It's saying bring them here and let's Train them. 
Notice their program first. It's isolation. The bright lights of Judah are being isolated. They're removed from their homes. They're influences that help mold their character in God. Two, in Babylon, they're separated from the temple. They're removed from their church. And the worship of the Lord in public. Three, they're separated from the reading and teaching of the word. They are separated from the older generations that they would need to grow in maturity. They are being isolated. The first part of this program is to isolate the kids. Get them alone. You hear and see embedded in this our need to be together. Do you hear and see in this our need to have older generations model the faith and repentance to us and for us? Kids, if you're living at home and you come to church with your parents week in and week out and have friends in the church, it is a massive blessing from the Lord. You are not isolated. Listen, the program of Babylon is to isolate you. Separating Daniel and his friends from all of this, the desire of the king is to snuff out their faith. The second is indoctrination, verse 4, to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. Here's the cultural shift that begins. So not only isolate them from their home and everything they knew, but then begin teaching them. And here's, it's, it's a cultural thing. They're likely going to be learning multiple languages, Sumerian, Akkadian, Aramaic, all of which are in the empire. Some of this beginning actually next week, um, maybe two weeks, uh, begins in Aramaic and it will follow along until chapter 7, uh, right around in there. But this literature would have included various mythological texts, which... We have a lot of record of mythological texts coming out of the Babylonian Empire having to do with Marduk and the other gods. With a, they probably would have learned astrology, math, medicine, highly educated. Sinclair Ferguson makes a great observation here in applying this. He says, quote, we too often ask the more superficial questions. That is about what he's talking about is learning the literature of the day. Is there anything wrong with them learning astrology and math, medicine? No, it's Ferguson's point. We we too often ask the more superficial questions such as, are there any embarrassing phrases used by this author? The deeper issue we need to recognize is that the ungodly think differently from the godly, end quote. It's not just the, the content of math. That's great. It's great to educate them. Please, children, be educated. The issue, he's saying, is a worldview is being given to them. They're being indoctrinated. It's not just pieces of the book that are bad. Oh no, can't read that book. It says a bad word. No, the issue is the worldview. What worldview is coming from this education. Third compromise, verse 5, the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. In addition to being enrolled in the king's schools, Babylon, you, the students were to receive a, a kingly diet. We'll see next week that some of the students refuse to do this and insist on vegetables and water. Why is the king's diet a problem? 
Some have said clearly it violated the dietary restrictions in the law of Moses. But there's nothing in the text that would lead us to believe that that's the case. Some say, well, it's food offered to idols. Well, they ask for vegetables. Vegetables also got offered to idols just as much as meat. It's not the case. And to the dietary laws, they, they, they didn't have a problem with wine. Wine wasn't a restricted item for them. Well, again, we'll, we'll say more on this next week because we'll actually get to, to their response to what they do. The, the real issue controlling every part of life here is to seduce and immerse completely into the lifestyle of Babylon. In every possible way, we're going to take these boys and make them ours. From the inside out, every part of their life dominated by our instincts and our gods. The program is really complete. Good times, comfort, ease, education, status, all designed by the king to transform from loving God to loving and serving Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian Empire, and their gods. That's the program. Finally, identity. The youth of Judah are given new names as if to seal the deal on this complete transformation, we're going to take you, take your Jewish identity and take an eraser and wipe it away. And then we're going to take our pen and write our new name over it. It's really helpful stuff here. Daniel means God is my judge. It becomes Belteshazzar, which means Maybel, that is Marduk, protect my life. Do you see what they're doing? They're, they're taking over the entire identity of these people. From Daniel, God is my judge, to Mabel, protect my life. Hananiah, Yahweh is gracious. Becomes Shadrach, the command of Aku, the moon god of Chaldea. Mishael, who is, who is what God is. Mishael becomes Meshach, who is what Aku is. They're taking the names and mocking God and renaming from the true and living God to the gods of Babylon. Azariah, Yahweh has helped, becomes Abednego, servant of Nebo, the, the, their pagan god of wisdom. We've seen it in Esther and we see it here. The idea of the world that stands against, opposed to the true and living God wants to consume your entire identity. Every single part of you. We'll end with an application which is this, and this is vital for us. What we're going to find in Daniel is a mind as sharp as a diamond. A mind that is completely and utterly dedicated to the Lord. How, how can you resist this kind of treatment? This kind of isolation and education? If, if, Neb, if Nebuchadnezzar could get the youth to change their minds, he would own them. They can be educated and cultured in this land. They are 
going to lose their identity as the people of God. From our New Testament lesson, it makes this vital point. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Listen, all of this program of Babylon is meant to, to crack the mind of the people of God and take their heart from serving and worshiping the Lord and Him alone to a whole different program, a whole different set of gods. Paul knows that if we're to present our bodies to God in worship, it, it means not being conformed to the world, but having renewed minds. I'm going to let this out of the bag. Daniel's going to keep this job for a long, long time. He's going to survive across three empires. Regime change again and again and again, and Daniel's going to last. He's remarkable. He outlives his bosses. He sees terrible things. How did he do it? Well, clearly it was all the vegetables and water. No. His mind was renewed. He never lost it. He was always the people of God in a foreign land. He planted trees and watered them and eventually ate their fruit. This was home. But they never captured his mind. His soul was still devoted wholly to God. We talk often about being shocked by the shift in culture of our own day. Paul in Colossians 3. What are we to do? He says this, If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died. You, believer in Christ, set your minds on the things that are above where Christ is because you've died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. Child of God, how are we not to fully assimilate ourselves and the, the, the things of this world that is hostile to the gospel? Set your mind on Christ. For you have died and your life is hidden in Him. Wear Him like armor. Wear Him like armor. He was exiled in our place so that we might be brought home in Him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Would you help us as we study Daniel to, to learn what it is to live life as Christians in exile? Or as we see the program, a cunning program of the world to, to totally dominate us and, and take us apart brick by brick, even from the inside, our appetites. Lord, would you help us to live lives in solidarity and faith, being loved by you and loving you and loving others. Lord, we can't do this. It's too big for us. Would you shape us in it? In Christ's name we pray. Amen.